people don't exist completely within their own choices. There's tons of external forces, there's social determinants uh, that lead to where they are. And if we can recognize that, that people are not solely the product of their own choices, it's easier to have empathy and then to understand why they may be in the situation that they're in. And if we really take that even just a little bit further, um, we can maybe think about what are the various choices that this person has actually had and why they have actually maybe applied their own strengths to make the choice that they did. It's really, it's our job to figure out what, what these strengths are, to celebrate them, and then to make space for that person to continue to develop that strength. Hello, welcome to Specialty Matters. I'm your host, Dr. Guylaine Lefebvre, and I'm an Executive Director at the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada. We started out this podcast last year by discussing innovations in specialty medicine, but then we quickly pivoted to topics that you, our listeners, have identified as areas that you'd like us to explore and deconstruct. I've had the pleasure of meeting guests who've made us think on key topics such as planetary health, equity, diversity, and inclusion, physician wellness. We talked about anti-oppression in medicine. Today, it turns out that our topic is relevant and connected to all of these other themes we've presented. Uh, we really wanted to do something special for National Indigenous Peoples Day, and I'm so looking forward to my conversation with Dr. Ryan Giroux. Our theme for this episode will focus on embracing a strengths-based approach with Indigenous patients and partners. What does this look like? We'll unpack the need to shift the communications framework to a strengths-based approach in order to address health inequalities. Ryan will leverage his experience with us as a pediatrician who steers away from deficit discourse. He embraces strength and resilience instead. Is it as easy as it sounds? Uh, A very warm welcome, Ryan. Thank you so much. It's uh, lovely to be here and uh, great timing for this with National Indigenous Peoples Day coming up very quickly. And I'm assuming that folks will be listening to this after National National Indigenous Peoples Day. So you're well ahead for the next uh, National Indigenous Peoples Day next June. (laughs) I I have to share that Ryan's energy is contagious and and truly inspirational. Uh, Ryan, you're a pediatrician at St. Mike's in Toronto. He's deeply invested in contributing to substantive equity for First Nations children and youth in particular. Ryan has three urban Indigenous health clinics as well as a refugee newcomer clinic. He's a clinician educator with us at the Royal College. I happen to know that you're an advocate for healthy work and personal life balance, and it's hard to figure out how you achieve that with everything that you manage to do, Ryan. We're really privileged, (laughs) really privileged to to have you uh, working with us at the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada. We're recording this episode mid, mid-June 2023, and for sure, I we more than ever are aware of the realities of climate change. There are wildfires across Canada. It's devastating. I'm now on the unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe people, and I'll be honest, it feels surreal. Looking at the murky orange sky earlier this week, smelling smoke from so far away, and in the forecast, they predict that that smoke will be coming back for fires still raging in parts of Ontario and Quebec. Ryan, can I invite you to share with us a land acknowledgement of where you are? Of course. Thank you for first off for recognizing the the land in which you're on, and I know that we're we're far away um, in physical distance, uh, but we're certainly brought closer together 
through various technologies such as podcasts. So I'm, I'm again, very pleased to be here. And personally, I'm in uh, Toronto. Some people call it Toronto. This is Treaty 13 territory, and that's the land of the Huron-Wendat, Seneca, Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. I also grew up on Treaty 6 and Treaty 8 territory and Cree and Métis territory. And uh, I myself am a member of the Métis Nation of Alberta. Um, I grew up in Athabasca, Alberta, which is about a couple hours north of Edmonton. And, you know, whenever I think about doing land acknowledgements, it's obviously clear that there are pieces that you must include, right? You have to include where you are. I include where I'm where I came from um, and kind of the land in which I, I learned very basic things about myself and how to walk in this world. But I also include kind of a, a call to how I'm going to complete the work that I'm doing in whatever space it is. So for today, the call to myself and the call to uh, you is that we think about how we can inspire those around us and inspire these listeners to do good work for Indigenous peoples, whether it's in Treaty 13 territory um, in Toronto or somewhere else in Canada and worldwide. How I will do that is I will listen to the teachings that have been given to me before by Indigenous and non-Indigenous people, and I'll use those in a good way, um, centering our communities uh, and the health of our communities in doing that. I also wanted to say, you know, we are in Indigenous History Month and we're coming up on National Indigenous Peoples Day. And I think it's important we reflect on, you know, where land acknowledgements actually fit when it comes to truth and reconciliation, because it's a question I get incredibly often. They're becoming very commonplace, right? And um, I think it's important to remind ourselves that without action and without reflection, um, they don't really meet their purpose, which is the recognition of sovereignty and the recognition of a joint responsibility to all those involved uh, with a, a land acknowledgement. So I really encourage all of the listeners to take a listen to Elder Albert Dumont's Specialty Matters podcast on land acknowledgements to understand what this actually means coming from our elder, because he spends a lot of time going through these things and, and he does it a lot more justice than I'm doing it uh, in, a, in a quick minute soundbite. And I know that today we're really focused on how we as healthcare providers can change the way we think um, and the way that we do things in our various healthcare spaces. In particular, um, one thing that we can and that we really should do is consider how much our people have survived in the face of centuries of adversity and colonization. And the way I conceptualize that is a, is a strengths-based approach. Um, so I hope that gives us a sense of how we're going to uh, discuss today. Thanks, Ryan. I already love this conversation. <laughs> if you'll allow me, I'll start with a, a bit of a personal story for me. A strength-based rings true for me, and I'll, I'll share my my own story and of meeting Indigenous people in the North. I, I'm immensely grateful, and I recognize the privilege I've had. Uh, my husband and I were able to spend our summer vacations over about 10-year period to travel up North, where we would canoe down some of our wild rivers going up to the Arctic. Our Canadian North is spectacular. In July and August, our trips, we would have three or six canoes, and it really allowed us to experience the pristine beauty of, of our wilderness and the force of nature, may I say. We would often be hosted at the beginning and at the end of our trip by Indigenous people who were very proud of the stories of their ancestors and of this land. And I developed a profound sense of admiration for First Nations, Inuit and Matisse people who were part of this land and were able to th really thrive through their strength of character, their understanding of the land that they depend on, right? I Here we are in the middle of a 
thunderstorm or of four days of constant rain and we're wearing Gore-Tex and we're well protected and you can't help but think 150 years ago and it, let alone in the middle of winter, right? As white settlers, I don't believe many, if any of us would have survived here without the guidance of Indigenous people. And so with that frame of mind, how do we reconcile this with the colonization, the assimilation, the social inequities that have resulted this is what we'll explore together, right? Can we integrate a strength-based approach that respects and honors Indigenous people as we create together better conditions where families can flourish? What does Indigenous Peoples Day mean to you as an individual and, and as a physician? So as I mentioned, I'm a member of the Métis Nation of Alberta, but I also have um, mixed European settler heritage as well. So um, National Indigenous Peoples Day is really actually important to both of these aspects of my identity. So on, on one hand, I it helps me feel proud to be Métis um, and part of the Indigenous community. And this day really allows me to feel strength in the recognition of my community and also to remind myself of my ancestors who've been part of this land for far longer than it's been known as Canada. It's meant to be reflective for me as well and to make promises to, to myself and to my community for how I'm walking in the world um, as a Métis person and physician. Uh, on the other hand, I recognize how other parts of me have contributed to colonization and genocide of Indigenous peoples in this land. And I feel it's my and our responsibility as people with settler heritage to recognize and respond to the calls to action of Indigenous peoples in these lands. And, you know, really, this can be so many different ways. You, you mentioned uh, climate change earlier, right, with the wildfires and things like that. Whatever facet makes the most sense or is closest to you, um, National Indigenous Peoples Day, in my opinion, gives a reminder for individuals to put time and effort into something that means something to them. And I think, you know, we're focused a lot on physicians and other healthcare professionals. So applying this to your clinical work, I think, is a really great place to start. Thanks. I think it flows well into the conversation of strengths-based approach. You, you brought up, of course, the importance of reconciliation, of recognizing what Indigenous people went through at the hands of settlers and the, the resulting inequities that we see as physicians still today. Can you talk to us about what the strength based approach means, um, and maybe in, in your practice in particular. Definitely. Um, so I'll go ahead, and before I kind of get into the, the weeds of it, I'll say that a strength-based approach is not only applicable to Indigenous patients and families. It can be used in so many other areas, such as ability or disability, or LGBTQ2S plus uh, communities as well. The list goes on. So it's something that you can apply in many, many different areas. But to, to give you a sense of how I conceptualize it, I've First, to be able to apply a strengths-based approach or to understand it, it requires personal work and self-reflection. Some people may call it cultural humility, this, uh, this self-reflection. So to me, cultural humility is the process of self-evaluation and self-critique as it relates to power imbalances between different cultures. And it's an active process. It doesn't have a specific endpoint. It's something you continuously must do. Some people may use the term cultural safety, which you may have heard, or our listeners may have heard. And that applies really cultural humility to a specific healthcare context. Um, and if you're familiar with social sciences, they use a variety of different terms as well. But, you know, whatever it might be called, or this reflection might be called, I think it's, it has a few key pieces. Can I ask, Ryan, I... I... Yeah. 
to me, and maybe I've just understood this wrong, but I've always interpreted that cultural humility had a a lens on the fact that I, as a non-Indigenous person, can never put myself completely in the shoes of somebody who's actually Indigenous. And that applies to all of our patients, truly, right? I, I am who I am, and I, I can empathize as much as I can empathize, but I'm I'm humble enough to hopefully know which questions to ask to be able to to understand you better. Is that a fit? Yeah, I, I t- definitely agree with that. So cultural humility would, would suggest that unless you're part of a, a specific group, you wouldn't know what it is like in, in, completely to be um, part of that cultural group, right? And I think, you know, if we if we think about the term cultural competency, which some people may have heard, that is like you're becoming competent in being able to provide cultural services. But really, is that what we what we really want? Because you're not going to be able to learn absolutely everything right. about abs- absolutely everybody's culture. If you can at least apply a cultural cultural humility lens, um, then that allows you to say, I'm not going to know everything, right? right? But I can understand how me and my culture and the things that I bring to a specific interaction leads to power imbalances and how I need to mitigate those power imbalances in order to create a, a, a good relationship. Yeah, that makes sense. Does that make that sense? makes sense. Yeah. yeah, for sure. So like I said, any what, whatever way you describe it, uh, whatever words you use, I think the important points is that you have to recognize that there are inherent differences between um, the opportunities and life paths that are afforded to people. And really, if you want to break it down, you have to recognize that racism exists, and it does. You also have to recognize that even despite your best efforts, you and your organizations, for example, are implicated in some sort of way. Even if you didn't mean to it, even if you are a good person, this doesn't mean that you're not implicated in it, right? And last, you really have to understand that this has um, all shaped the way in which you view people and you view their problems. So there's some inherent judgment that a person has often made a bad decision and that they're living out their consequences. But people don't exist completely within their own choices. There's tons of external forces, there's social determinants uh, that lead to where they are. And if we can recognize that, that people are not solely the product of their own choices, it's easier to have empathy and then to understand why they may be in the situation that they're in. And if we really take that even just a little bit further, um, we can maybe think about what are the various choices that this person has actually had and why they have actually maybe applied their own strengths to make the choice that they did. And so really, it's our job to figure out what, what these strengths are, to celebrate them, and then to make space for that person to continue to develop that strength. So that's how I conceptualize it. And sometimes people still are a bit confused, right? Because it's it's kind of an abstract concept, but um, I don't know. Does that make it sense to you? It makes sense to me the way you've explained it for sure, right? It's uh, acknowledging the the insights, the the line of thinking that we all have based on where we come from and putting that in perspective as we respect people's strengths going forward. I'll... I'll use a very concrete example, see what you think if that if if that actually fits with what we're discussing. Uh, a recent um, YouTube video that I watched by the Thunderbird Foundation on strength-based approach to life promotion instead of talking about suicide prevention. So there is a youth council uh, of the Assembly of First Nations who are very passionate about life promotion, right? When you approach really anybody, but particularly Indigenous people who we know have suffered a higher rate of suicide, talking about suicide and death, they know all about that. Let's focus on life 
promotion. And the ultimate goal is the same, perhaps, but we're actually putting a positive lens on recognizing the the strengths, the resilience, the opportunities that otherwise are, are perhaps shifted aside. I think that's a really good example. And I think one thing that you're highlighting here, Guyane, is um, that you can really apply a strengths-based approach to systemic level pieces, not just individuals, that you can apply it to kind of a population or systemic to systemic um issue, if you want to call it that. So on a systemic level, it, it and when we apply it to Indigenous peoples, you're right, it, it's very easy to discuss how our health is generally worse than non-Indigenous populations in terms of chronic disease or life expectancy, infant mortality, um, suicide rates, and the list really goes on and on. But with that, we never actually get to hear how our communities are promoting health and promoting life, right? Right. What about the Indigenous clinics who support urban Indigenous people and get them services they need when they're not in their home community? What about the fact that Indigenous children on reserve are actually higher, uh, uh, have a higher on-time vaccine uh, acceptance rate than non-Indigenous children? What about the fact that we're integrating traditional birthing practices and postnatal care for Indigenous patients? We don't get to hear that often uh, when we talk about Indigenous people. We have an Indigenous health lecture, right? And it contributes to pathologizing Indigenous peoples as riddled with problems without the caveat that we often know how to help and improve our own communities. And also the concept that, you know, nothing about me without me, that we are actually now hopefully in a position where we recognize the importance of self-determination, the importance of, Mm -hmm. I can't even imagine what an Indigenous person in a different context may require to achieve the same health and well-being goals that we all should have for ourselves, for our families, right? So, Keeping in mind that as settlers, we have over time made decisions that were often wrong for people. How can we in our generation say, we're actually going to listen and you're a part of the answer and we will do everything we can to support you achieving what you what you require, right? Definitely. Some people uh, conceptualize that as we didn't all start at the same starting line. Right. Oh, and and mm-hmm. you and I, I, I worked at St. Mike's, as you know, for yeah. <laughs> years, and I, I have learned so much from my patients. And I tell you, the humility, the number of times, every week for sure, almost every day, I would meet someone who I would actually think, if I'd been in this person's shoes, where would I be today? And uh, And having Definitely. the humility to say it is astounding how... People have been resilient to a lot of what they have faced over time and and where where we come out of that with the strengths-based approach of, of looking to continuing our, our reconciliation. One thing when you and I were talking last week, we, we talked about the avoiding rainbow washing, right? And so I... As much mm-hmm. as this is a very positive conversation, at least for me, hopefully for our listeners, it, you know, it doesn't wash over all of the other things. I Do you want to chat maybe about what rainbow washing is and how we can avoid it? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, we're, yeah, we're definitely taking it um, maybe a bit out of the Indigenous health context, but, you know, I'm a a proud gay and queer man as well. And this really relates to Pride Month specifically. So for those of you who haven't heard of rainbow washing, it's in the way that I conceptualize it, it's usually how large corporations suddenly become pride friendly for the month of June, Pride Month. 
um, promoting how inclusive they are, changing all their window appliques and online social media presidents with a bunch of rainbows, donating some money to queer organizations. And while all these things are good for visibility, right, it's not always true that these corporations are doing it for the benefit of the queer community. Um, they may be doing it in order to garner attention, uh, to garner revenue. And when these companies may actually support activities that harm LGBTQ2S people in the other 11 months of the year, it's even worse if that's the case. So it's performative and it doesn't really center the community for whom they should be working for. My recommendation for folks is rainbow washing, be wary of it. Um, I don't mean to say that all corporations are guilty of this, but think about who they're centering in their actions and uh, supporting local um, LGBTQ2S organizations who do this work not only for June, but for 12 months of the year um, is one great place to start. The other piece about rainbow washing, I'm going to call it now orange washing, is it can relate to other communities as well. And so I want you to reflect maybe on Orange Shirt Day, um, September 30th. Many of us see folks wearing orange shirts in recognition of uh, children who were placed in residential schools and, and never came home, as well as some of the anti-Indigenous bullying that we see in schools these days. And it actually can mirror what rainbow washing looks like in June, right? Many organizations, many corporations will sell orange shirts um, in order to make a profit without necessarily ensuring that the money that they receive for selling those orange shirts, you know, credit Indigenous artists for the art that they do. The money that they make doesn't necessarily go to um, Indian residential school survivors programming or various Indigenous organizations. So it's, again, another thing that we have to be really cautious of is corporations using days or events to promote themselves um, and not actually to center the, the correct uh, groups or people. Thank you for that. And and I think where it applies potentially on National Indigenous Day and and everything that we're trying to do to reconcile with Indigenous health as a right, a human right for all, is to be careful that we don't fall into that trap, right? Of just, it looks good, but what do we actually doing about it, which takes me to yep. the last bit of our podcast today is what can we do if, if, if we had to, to influence our listeners on something that they can do right now that would actually contribute to the solution, so to speak, or at least the way forward. Do you have any any tips? Yeah, so a, a couple of different things. So, I mean, there's many different realms in which I could speak to this, but certainly applying strengths-based approach to your your clinical practice, I think, is something that um, can be very helpful. So leading with the positive, applying a motivational interviewing technique, using phrases such as, I'm really happy that you are, or I'm really pleased that I am seeing, really helps to break down that barriers of the power differential, right? I'll give you an example, and I know that I don't have tons of time, but it's, it's an example that I often use, is this concept in pediatrics of early relational health, which essentially discusses the fact that healthcare practitioners can model and celebrate positive parenting um, strategies with parents in their office. And this can help to offset some adverse childhood experiences that some children are exposed to. And I really think you can apply this to the entire life spectrum. So an example being if, if a parent appropriately responds to a child during an appointment, we can say, that was a really good job how you responded to that child in that way. And I can also model the same behavior in my clinic. If a child is doing something um, that I think is really good, I'll get down to the level and say, I really appreciated how you, you sat down and uh, colored for 10 minutes. That was really helpful, right? So we're modeling that behavior. And those are things you can do 
specifically within your office as it relates to adult health using some of those those tools or phrases that i i mentioned can be um can be quite impactful and the reason why i think it's it's so impactful is that you know there's one thing to do this on a systemic level but really when we're doing it on an individual level we're changing the whole dynamic of our patient interaction and it helps like i said helps to reduce that power for differential between a healthcare provider and a patient and helps to create that connection that hopefully will be lasting for a very long time thank you that speaks to me i i remember a, a patient at st mike's who had been lost to follow up with an abnormal pap test and when she came in instead of saying how terrible it was and all the risks and he didn't come we really celebrated that she was here today, you know. Congratulations on having the courage to come in for your exam today. Yep. And and then we found out all of the hurdles in this person's life that's getting in the way of her actually getting the right care. So it, it brings together strengths-based with putting your patient at the center of what you do and, and the empathy that we all need. Key messages for me, I, strengths are gifts. We really need to acknowledge that for ourselves, for each other, and in this context, for the Indigenous people who are providers with us, who are patients with us and colleagues, to uphold that relationality and understand and acknowledge our differences, but at the same time, in recognizing those differences, making ourselves open to that profound respect of the other person honoring the legacy that each of us brings with all of its faults and tribulations and and recognizing the past harm and a way forward that can be supportive and reconciling the truth. Any, any last words, Ryan, for our audience? Oh, you know I always have words. Uh, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Two things I think I'd like to leave uh, everyone with. So first is that truth and reconciliation is not just an Indigenous people issue. Um, it's an everyone issue. And as Indigenous people, we need to work together with you, our allies, in this work. And I hope that you're able to reflect on what that might look like on National Indigenous Peoples Day. Second piece is I hope that you can find the positive in your Indigenous patients in your work, right? Think about all the strengths that they have and how we can celebrate it. And by creating that environment where we recognize these strengths, it helps you to build a stronger relationship, which keeps your patients and families engaging with you, and it's all relational. So I think that we both reflected on uh, pieces of that uh, during this podcast, and uh, I hope that uh, our listeners can all reflect on how that might look in their own practice. Ryan, thank you for letting the Royal College once again leverage your experience, your insights, your passion for Indigenous health, and well, really for life in general, I'll say. Although there are dates set aside in the calendar to celebrate and honour Indigenous peoples, we need to be proactive on our own, not just twice a year, but every day. Thank you to our listeners, new and those who keep coming back. This is our last episode of the season. We can't wait to connect with you again in September. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, give us a rating and write a review. This really helps others find this podcast and lets us create a more a content that's uh, important to you. Write to us, fellowshipaffairs at royalcollege.ca with suggestions or with feedback on this podcast. I wish you a safe and healthy summer. Until September, I'm Guylaine Lefebvre.